This episode is brought to you with support from PerfectDailyGrind.com. Perfect Daily Grind, your source for coffee education, articles, videos, and more, from the farm to the cup. Support comes from SF Bay Coffee, who pays farmers sustainable prices and helps build homes, schools, and medical facilities for their communities. Learn more at their website and get 10% off with the code COFFEEPODCAST at sfbaycoffee.com. We are living in a day of coffee crisis. This crisis is associated most closely with the issue of the price of coffee on the sea market. What does that mean? Well, simply put, the price of coffee is dangerously low today and has a history of being volatile or inconsistent over its relatively short life on the global market. The crisis has implications on all players in the global coffee chain. It raises some basic questions. What does all this mean? Why should I care? Why is this happening? What can I do? I've had these questions too, and they have swarmed in my head almost since the beginning of the podcast back in October of 2015. With my personal goal of better understanding the current crisis and coffee price in general, I've sought out experts in their fields to share their perspectives. This series should not be viewed as an answer to the crisis, but I do believe the accumulation of these episodes potentially holds the key for solutions to big problems it creates. I'll say this out front. This is a complex issue. I believe the real danger in this conversation is oversimplifying the issue or dismissing it as a flash in the pan and failing to reach understanding. I hope what this series offers you is the opportunity to better understand the crisis and be a part of the global conversation concerning all of us coffee people. Ultimately, I hope it leads to real action that produces sustainable solutions. So without further ado, we start with a global historic perspective on the price of coffee with guest Professor Jonathan Morris. All right, Professor Morris, welcome back. How have you been? I've been great, thanks. Uh, Really enjoying myself the last few weeks. Went over to the SCA uh, in Boston and had a great time there. It's the first time I've been to the SCA in America. And I've just got back from Uganda. So I've uh, been out for a bit of a field trip. So I'm I'm doing well. Are you able to talk about what you were doing in uh, Uganda or uh, is that confidential? No, it's not confidential. I was invited to take part in a a workshop uh, by a colleague of mine. The workshop was called African Coffee Histories. And we had people there from uh, Uganda, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Kenya, India, and the UK. And uh, really interesting stuff, you know. Um, It's great to talk with coffee people, people who come from all different um, sort of sides of coffee, Mm-hmm. And it's the first time I've ever seen Robusta go in the field. So uh, it was really interesting to me. Very exciting. Sounds sounds like fun. So you know that I'm already convinced about the necessity of this conversation, but let's pretend I'm not convinced. Can you convince me why we should consider the historical perspective when talking about the current coffee price? Yeah, very simply, we've been here before. We've had coffee price crises before. And also, I think if we look at the history of coffee, we see a little bit about how we got to this crisis and what the underlying problems in the market are. Because um, 
My sense from studying coffee history is that actually you can identify, if you like, the fundamentals that uh, have been affecting the market, the different strategies that have been used to, to manage those prices. And uh, in a sense, I even think we might be able to use history as a way of thinking ourselves out of this crisis. Well, I'm glad that uh, you seem optimistic even in the, in the use of uh, the historical context and the uh, stories yeah. that we're going to get into. Um, that's a bit of a refresher, I think, from some of the conversations. So I'm excited to, to jump in here. Let, I, I, we kind of have to start at the beginning. I think that would make the most sense. And I've heard it's said by uh, you know many influencers in the coffee industry, whether it be on Twitter, Instagram, you know some articles that I've read, that coffee was established on a colonial agenda fueled by cheap land and cheaper labor, even slavery. Is this accurate? And what should we make of the beginning price structure of coffee? Yes, it is accurate. Uh, very accurate. And I think what we have to do is understand those systems and then how, as it were, those systems were played. Hmm. Um, so if we start with the systems and the sort of the colonial model, so we have really two models. The first model was the one that we saw in Java. Java is the first place outside of the kind of Arabian African heartland that coffee is, is transplanted to and grown. It's done originally under the system of the Dutch East India Company and what they call the collection system. And effectively, what the company did was pass a revenue on to the local lords and chiefs of tribes that they had to supply them with a certain amount of coffee which would be then transported back to Amsterdam. So hmm. the way that this happened was that the local lords would basically instruct their peasants, if you like, leaf men, so sort of those who were tied to them, hmm. not as slaves per se, but as, as sort of owing allegiance to them, that they must plant a certain amount of their land with coffee. And uh, that was then presented as a tithe to the Dutch in return for uh, administering the colony. Of course, there wasn't much choice about whether you paid that, but mm. that was the, the, the way that that was structured. So that enabled the East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, to ship back coffee, to obtain coffee at a pretty low price, to set that price and to ship it back to Amsterdam where it would be auctioned. So in that respect at that time, the price going to the farmers is really the price going to their lord. And uh, as far as the lords are concerned, it's effectively the price of just paying the Dutch to keep them on site and to enable them to continue governing as a sort of local elites, as it were. Um, mm. That moves into more outright slavery when we see the transportation of coffee into the Caribbean and subsequently into Latin America. So uh, as we've discussed before, if we think about uh, coffee and particularly the French take coffee to uh, what is modern day Haiti, which was at the time known as uh, San Domingue, and that is on a pure slave system. So the slaves are receiving no money for their labor. And again, therefore, that makes the coffee relatively cheap. Mm. Um, that system is used also in Brazil. 
And when we start getting into, as it were, the modern coffee market with the development of Brazil as the big supplier of coffee into basically North America as the big market for coffee, then the Brazilian owners who dominate this trade have very large plantations, uh, which is unusual perhaps in some of the other sort of coffee-owning countries. And what they are doing is using slave labor, and they are basically working on a model which says if we expand production but keep the price low, then we can grow the market in the US and indeed grow that market, not just because of the volume that we're producing at, but also by getting coffee at a price that ordinary Americans, if you like, can buy. I see. This this sounds like a key moment. It absolutely is, because this is the driving way that coffee expands. So to go back to your question about cheap land, cheap labor, we talk about pushing out the coffee frontier. And that's what happens in Brazil. We push out from particularly Sao Paulo. Uh, Sao Paulo, they push back and back with the railways. They're using this sort of very cheap labor. They're just uh, basically bringing in land, you know, deforest the land, uh, burn the trees to to create an initial fertilizer through ash, plant it up with coffee. Um, so it's a very form of what we might call extensive agriculture. So it, it comes to my mind that, for instance, around the turn of the century, the largest coffee grower in Brazil is a guy called Francisco Schmidt, and he has 7 million coffee trees uh, oh, wow. in production. Yeah, that's that's huge, right? It's not a small number of coffee trees. That is not a small thing. So we need to, to sort of to spill this a little bit forward as well. That's the strategy. And that strategy continues after the eventual abolition of slavery in Brazil. And the, the abolition of slavery takes some time and, and, and it's played through. But in order to continue with the cheap labor, what the Brazilian coffee growers do is to start recruiting actually um, emigrants from Europe, but not emigrants to come and be, as it were, coffee proprietors, but people who came out who have been peasants in Europe often very much on the margins, and who would continue to do so in Latin America Hmm. on schemes that were effectively repaying the debt. So their passage is paid. They are paid a small amount by the owners, but they are expected to pay back the debt of their passage. And that takes quite some time. So they, again, are a very cheap labor resource. I see. I want to kind of push this forward a little bit because the end result of that strategy is obviously that we have a lot more coffee being produced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as long as the market grows, that's fine. But come, and the first time this really happens is in 1906, come the point at which we reach really bumper harvests in Brazil and the market can no longer absorb that, then we have a problem. A big problem. Before we jump forward, uh, I know we have a lot of listeners from all over. Can you explain just briefly what a bumper harvest is? Yeah, okay. So a bumper harvest. So gradually what we found, particularly in Brazil, is that we have on years and off years, as it were, for volume. Gradually, therefore, every other year, we get a really big crop. So I don't know, uh, maybe some of your listeners grow apples. I do, for example. And you'll know that an apple tree and kind of actually by some sort of um, 
force of nature it tends to be across a whole region apple trees have one year when they produce much more crop than the next year mm -hmm. and the same is happening with coffee and so the result of that is that in 1906 i mean we've got so i'm going to give you some figures which i have pulled up here right. um yeah Conveniently pulling them out of the book. Um, okay. So, I mean, just to give you a sense of this, okay, Brazil, coffee production, 1890, 5.5 million sacks, 1901, 16.3 million. So we're seeing this kind of expansion. And that's about 73% of world output. 1906, 20.2 million bags of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's an enormous amount of coffee. And basically, there is not enough market for that. And as a result, in that year, that coffee price plunges. So the price plunges from sort of 13 cents a pound uh, down to six cents a pound. So to my mind, this is the start of when we see the coffee market, if you like, the coffee structures uh, entering a different paradigm. And a paradigm that I think we're still in today, which is the paradigm of overproduction relative to demand, and how do you manage that to maintain a steady price? I'm going to give you a little stat about 1906, because it really is the key year. 1906, Brazil grows 80% of the world's coffee output that year. Wow. 80%, right? And 75% of that 80% goes to the US. So that's the structure of that market at that time. But because there's so much coffee, it can no longer be absorbed. And then we start a problem that intensifies. So the first solution to this, and it's a solution that the Brazilians use two or three times as well, we've got to control the amount of coffee on the market. And they use a thing called valorization. And a guy called Seeklin, uh, uh, a banker, is brought in, Herman Seeklin, and um, basically what he does is buy up the surplus, but keep it off the market. He keeps it warehoused okay. and he gets a lot of finance from various sorts of consortiums in Europe and America to, to enable him to sort of pay that price. And by keeping it off the market and gradually drip feeding it in, uh, that pushes the price back up. Yeah, because there is no longer a, a surplus of coffee that you can buy. Right. So consequently, the prices rise. And by 1913, then uh, they can actually sort of, the, the prices are back by 1910s so or over sort of 10 cents a pound. And by 1913, they can pretty much wrap up the scheme. I see. Okay. So that scheme is kind of the first valorization scheme. And it's the first time that really a producer country now intervenes to control the supply of coffee onto the market Interesting. as a way of trying to manage its price. Is that considered a pretty typical or standard situation in, in an agricultural product, do you think? Or is that seen as an ethical or an unethical thing to do? Or is that just how, that's just a thing that you can do? It's like an option. Uh, it's seen as an option. Uh, there's quite an interesting thing at the time. It does not go down well in the U.S., I can tell you. Uh, so this guy, Seeklin, is, is brought before a congressional committee in 1912. Okay. And um, he says, well, look, you know, these guys were really poor. If you paid them that price, they'd have gone out of production. This would have been disastrous. 
and, uh, you know, possibly a revolution. And uh, the thing that comes back to him is some guy signs up and says, do you think that a revolution would have been worse than a US, US consumers paying uh, 14 cents a pound for coffee? So there wasn't kind of that much sympathy for it. Interesting, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, but it is a way, what it did do was prove that this was a way you could sort of manage the market. And okay. because Brazil is so absolutely dominant, yeah. They had control, so yeah. It actually can do that, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, where else is the coffee going to come from? And they actually kind of do variations on that two or three times. But then we hit the Depression, the Great Depression, and that is disastrous again. Because although the you know, coffee price in the period up to then has sort of climbed back up, but basically what happens is we get absolutely huge bumper crop in 1929. And okay. um, 1929, of course, is the worst year possible to Herbal. get a bumper crop. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so to give you some sense of this, I mean, again, they try and sort of manage this by holding stuff off, but really there's just so much surplus. So by 1930, right, there are 26 million bags of Brazilian coffee in reserve. Oh, so man. being held back from the market, I mean, that is just a Staggering, phenomenal. yeah, that's... Uh, absolutely. And I mean, so at that point, they actually have to destroy coffee in order to try and keep and regulate that flow. Right, so because they, it has to actually be gone, because otherwise it's... Yeah, because what on earth, I mean, even to physically warehouse it is going to be too costly. Right. So, I mean, there's various schemes. So, I mean, there's schemes like, I mean, there's a famous one where they kind of mix it up with tar and try and use it as engine fuel, you know, in the, the sort of steam engine. So, use this instead of, of coal. Um, wow. The kind of, you know, some of it is used for sort of trying to make um, roads or bricks or whatever. But uh, and some, by the way, this is actually the the point at which Brazil turn to Nestle and say, well, you know, is there some way we could do something with all this coffee? And they start thinking about coffee powder. Um, mm. But actually, the biggest single way that they control it is to burn it, to literally burn it. They set up these huge incineration plants, and uh, between sort of thirty one and thirty nine, they burn eight T. Eight zero million bags of coffee. Eighty million bags of coffee. Eighty million bags of coffee. So that would have been three years worth of world supply at that point. Wow. Yeah. Try and manage this down. So what what I'm trying to 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 convey to you, Jesse, is, is, is because, and the reason for thinking about all this, apart from the the sheer in, incredibleness of it, is the problems here are all about oversupply relative to demand and overcapacity in the market. Yes. And that's a problem that we see throughout, I think, the 20th century. And we'll go on and talk about the other ways that it's been managed. But that's kind of still the problem that we see throughout the 20th and into the 21st century. And it's how we manage that that really regulates coffee prices. I, I don't want to jump too far ahead in the conversation, but sure. so to sum it up as a problem, you might say 
it's it's the problem we've had since uh, the same problem we were just talking about the surplus of coffee on the market is is yeah. has a great effect on the a low price of coffee. Yeah, it's it's a very simple economic thing. Yeah, um, and we'll spool on a bit of that, but we know that uh, coffee is a commodity. Uh, the majority of coffee is traded as commodity coffee. So if there's a surplus of a commodity on a market, the price goes down. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and again, that is that is transferable across commodities. We know that that's how that occurs. And we have had that problem for a long time. And the the other difficulty, which, which we might come on to, is how do those price corrections take place? Because after all, if this had happened the whole time, you know, people would be pulling out a coffee. But right. the price corrections that usually happen, happen for reasons that don't necessarily benefit farmers or consumers. So the big price corrections in coffee tend to come when some catastrophic event pulls the coffee off the market in some way or leads to or some other event changes the dynamic of the market. So more circumstantial Uh, than uh, decision being made. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you what solved that problem sort of in the end of the 1930s. Okay. The Second World War. That's that's a big one. <laughs> that's a that's a big mess to, to have to get into to solve your coffee problem. Yeah. And it solved it in a rather perverse way. Uh it solved it because the US government understood that the kind of disruption to the wartime coffee market at a point when, uh, you know, that you're having all the disruption anyway because you couldn't then ship for Brazil, would have had great difficulty shipping coffee over to Europe, for example. It's always mm-hmm. going to be at risk, you know, to guarantee supply and guarantee that coffee continued to be grown. They worked with Brazil and with Colombia, which was also becoming a big player at this point, and we'll talk a little maybe about the, the, the playing between Colombia and Brazil, to establish something called at that point the Inter-American Coffee Agreement. Yes, okay. And the Inter-American Coffee Agreement basically set up something called the Pan-American Coffee Bureau, and they basically tried to regulate with the U.S. a sort of a system whereby the U.S. itself also ensured the supply of coffee. In other words, it ensured a quota system whereby countries could have a quota of coffee to supply to the U.S. so that there was sufficient coffee in the market, but sufficient to meet demand. And that also enabled those countries to hold off some of their reserve coffee stocks because they were getting sufficient income year on year. Okay. Um, Sorry, this is, I'm getting more and more complex. But basically, so the Inter-American Coffee Agreement is the first agreement that unites producer and consumer markets. And in this case, essentially the very big producers, Brazil, Colombia, and some of the other Central Americans, and America as the big consumer, to manage the market collectively, to ensure a reasonable price throughout the chain so that consumers got a reasonable price and producers could be assured of receiving a reasonable price. I see. So how does that work? Just how do the mechanics of that work? I know we talked about the surplus of coffee driving down the price of coffee itself. 
if America is giving uh, or the U.S. is giving a quota, how does that how does that help that problem? Well, it helps the problem because basically what it's saying is, okay, this is the amount of coffee that you'll be supplying us. Um, In effect, that enables there to be a sort of um, a stand, it enables you to to project essentially what you can receive, and it enables some form of price stability to be established. Okay. So it's a way of basically ensuring that that coffee is purchased at a semi-official price. Yeah. I see. So w- would it be fair to say, you know, instead of blindly producing all the coffee you can, now you have a number, right? You have a quota to meet. So you say, exactly. okay, I know exactly how much coffee I need to grow, which means I know how, how much I need to pay for labor, et cetera, et cetera. And thus you have a, a, a reliable system. A business um, has gotten a lot easier and, and because of a transparent yeah. uh relationship of sorts. It, it, it gets a lot easier because of the transparent relationship. There's a further element to throw in here, which is that Brazil, Colombia set up their own government agencies for managing that trade. So in Brazil, it's called the IBC. In Colombia, it's, it's the, the FNC. Yeah, the FNC. Excellent. And so they also therefore manage that. So they know they have this amount of coffee that they're going to supply. They can then pass that back down the chain and manage accordingly, yeah? So it doesn't mean that there isn't an excess of coffee, but it means there isn't an excess of coffee on the market, and they know what they are going to supply. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, what happened was that Brazil still had excess coffee, but it had a secured price, effectively. It knew what price it was going to be able to, to secure. It had a secured market. And actually, of course, come the end of the war, when they liberalized the market again, bang, we got back in the same situation. Initially, we got a very interesting phenomenon because we had the uh, Brazil, uh, for want of a better word, dumped a lot of coffee, particularly into Europe at very low prices, which did have an effect of re-stimulating the market. But we again very quickly get to the point by the end of the 50s where we've got a lot of countries producing coffee, creating surpluses, unable to stabilize prices. Are these countries like unfamiliar with the with the uh, problem, do you think? Like Well, I think there's a there's an element here also of how do you steal and how do you arbitrage. Sorry, steal may sound a bit unfair. How do you take market share? Right. Okay. So our big competitors at this point are Colombia and Brazil. Colombia is extremely good at arbitraging its price. Colombia is also extremely good at, at playing on the fact that, you know, it says, and uh, you know, we would we would probably go along, you know, Brazil is your, your mass producer. We in Colombia are producing a somewhat higher quality of coffee. And uh, therefore, there's a price premium to be paid for that coffee. And that's the coffee that you use to add flavor to your blends. And um, what, what's the arbitrage price between those two? And that changes. Do you see what I mean? So that's a way of changing the, the balance. I see. Okay. Um, and at the same time, by the end of the 50s, you have the beginnings of new countries or, or old countries coming back stronger into the market, not least with the beginnings of the growing of Robusta. So the start of the West African countries coming in, and um, 
that sort of, you know, a resumption of some sort of production in some of the Asian countries. So by that period, you're getting an overall expansion of market. And of course, Robusta adds a whole new dimension to the game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that terminates in another sort of period of boom and bust in prices, which is then resolved by the start of the International Coffee Agreement, the ICA, so the Mm. foundation of the ICO and the ICA in the early 1960s. And these are closely related, the ICO and the the agreement itself and the organization. The International Coffee Organization and the ICA is the International Coffee Agreement. So the ICO, if you like, is the secretariat, mainly among the producing countries, but not only, that enforces and negotiates between itself its members, the ICA, the International Coffee Agreement. And that International Coffee Agreement is a kind of expanded version of the Inter-American Agreement, whereby it assigns quotas for production okay. and thereby attempts to stabilize market prices. So it doesn't say this is the price, but what it says is, you know, this is the amount that can be exported from your country, your country, your country, into these particular consumer markets, most notably the US, but also also Europe. That is what manages really the coffee price between the 60s and the end of the 80s. Stay in tune with the series to hear part two of this conversation next week. Interact with the content of this episode on Instagram, Facebook, or reach out to us at our email at info at thecoffeepodcast.org. For further engagement, updates, discounts on cool gear, subscribe to our newsletter on thecoffeepodcast.org. Get 20% off Jonathan Morse's book, Coffee, A Global History, with the code COFFEEPOD. Music for the series was produced by Michael Parallax. The coffee that helped me produce this series came from Pear Cupworks. I'm Jesse Hartman. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, and until next time, happy brewing.